Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, the health, medicine, and bioscience edition. Uh, My job here is to find the top people in their fields. This could be one in 500 people, one in 1,000, but they're usually really good at what they do. I want to ask them questions they haven't been asked before, hopefully, and get some great information for you, the listener, so that you learn something and maybe it improves your health and your life or your family's life. That's the goal here. So today I have uh, Paula Barreras. She's a a postdoc at Johns Hopkins and uh, working in uh, neurology on brain organoids. These are... um, approximations of the brain you know, they may be really good approximations or really narrow approximations but you know scientists can test various drugs on them and protocols to see how a real brain might work and then you don't have to use an animal hopefully so that's uh, my understanding of organoids but uh, paula thanks for coming how are you doing um doing well doing well thanks richard for inviting me and i hope my my uh, organoid brain was uh, was able to uh, speak about brain organoids in the right way i mean <laughs> is that correct what i said uh, yeah, so this is a very interesting new technology. Um, it's basically a small sphere of um, human cells that uh, we managed to um, convert into neurons and glial cells, which are the supporting cells for the neurons, um, in co-culture in vitro, which is you know, notoriously hard to achieve. Um, like you said, most of the studies are based on animal models and animals are not humans, not genetically or or physiologically. And, you know, that creates a big issue of uh, studies failing when translating to human studies from animal studies. And we believe that the use of technologies that are human-based can help reach, you know, that that barrier in in drug screening and and other studies. So, um, you know, I know we can't make a whole brain or a whole but so what what functions of the brain are you trying to approximate what kind of cells and again what kind of structure right so this uh, so we're trying to first achieve the presence of mature neurons and glial cells um, which is you know different from just a ball of stem cells um, and we are trying to approximate the interactions between these cells as close as possible to normal human adult brains so these mini brains or brain organoids um, have actually a few features of mature um, human brains, including synapses, meaning neurons talking to each other and interacting in a functional way. Um, there's evidence of early myelination, that's uh, oligodendrocytes, which are the cells that make the wrapping around uh, axons. Uh, we're seeing those mature cells present in our culture and they're starting to wrap around the axons, which is something um, novel of this uh, of this model, and uh, there's also spontaneous electrical activity. No, that's amazing. Um, what kind of um, medical conditions do you hope to approximate or test with the organoids? Well, the great thing about this model is that so the, the way it's made is um, starting with skin cells of a donor. 
And you could imagine that you can use any donor, either a healthy volunteer or a patient with a particular uh, disease. So in theory, you could use this model to do personalized testing for many different uh, brain conditions. Uh, we've used uh, healthy donors to produce healthy brain organoids and expose them to different viruses, for example, to test for uh, susceptibility of different types of brain cells to infections and understand more about these type of infections. We used it, for example, with the Zika virus when the outbreak happened in 2016. Um, but the other thing that we can use them for is to um, study particular brain disorders by using or producing organoids from patients. In particular, since this model has myelin, which is very hard to have in culture, you could think about using it for demyelinating disorders such as multiple sclerosis. So hmm, that's weird. Using skin cells, I guess you have to walk them back development-wise to induce, induce pluripotency in them and then guide them on the pathway down and become brain cells, right? Yeah, that, that's correct. So we start with uh, adult human skin cells, those are called fibroblasts, and then we induce them back to be stem cells. And from that stage, we induce them to become neural progenitor cells, which later develop into neurons, astrocytes, and oligodendrocytes, which are the main cell types in the human brain. That must have taken a lot of time and effort to figure out how to first induce pluripotency and then, you know, walk them down the pathways they need to go to create all those kinds of cells. But, I, you know, there's a lot of people working on this, so. Uh, it did. Uh, so we, we're not the first group that um, manages to like produce um, pluripotent cells. This, fortunately, there's a lot of very smart people working in, in how to use these technologies. Uh, but I do think we're one of the first, if not the first, uh, to manage to have um, co-culture of these adult phenotype uh, brain cells uh, with functional features um, like this. But it, it did take a lot of trial and error and... Uh, Long, uh, long nights at the lab. So what's, where are you at right now with the research? Are you still trying to tune the organoids so that they will approximate the functions you want or they're good enough and now you want to start testing um, you know, the effects of different diseases on, for instance, myelination or other things? Well, we, we think they're good enough now. Uh, the first main part of the research was try to not only produce them but make them uh, standardized such that every time you would produce them, they would be similar to each other. And that phase is done. We think we are able to make a reproducible model and make them similar to each other each time. Uh, then the next phase was to characterize, you know, which cell types we have, how mature are they over time, what's the optimal time to, you know, culture them. Um, and we think that's optimized now. And um, right now we're starting to use them for uh, testing different molecules or different experiments. Um, one of them is, for example, uh, JC virus, which is a virus that can cause severe neurological disease in the immunocompromised, in people with HIV or taking immunosuppressant drugs. Uh, so we have started some experiments to expose the uh, brain organoids to this virus and, and have gotten some interest. What is the, um, the blood-brain barrier composed of? And do you think that might be necessary to really approximate the function of this organoid? You know, what if you were able to culture a barrier and then you, you know, let the virus loose on the outside of the barrier or whatever it was and it had to migrate through it and then maybe it would approximate what happens in the brain better? I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's uh, probably one of the main limitations of this type of model. Um, the model doesn't have blood vessels um, and therefore we cannot have a brain 
blood barrier in that sense. Um, so the blood brain barrier, like uh, you sort of said, is the, the barrier between the blood, the blood vessels and the brain. And there's um, a lot of cell types and interactions between the blood vessel wall and the astrocytes, which is the main cell type that, that helps uh, form that barrier. Um, and we don't really have that in this model. Um, so by putting the virus directly, we're assuming uh, or recreating the scenario where the virus already went through the brain blood barrier. There's been some experiments that we've tried um, to try to approximate what a uh, blood brain barrier would look like by using endothelial membranes and putting the, the brain organoids in one side and the toxins in the other side. So there are ways to get around it, um, but our model doesn't have a blood brain barrier as, as such. What about the different parts of the brain? I mean, where do, it would be really hard, I guess, to even create mini versions of you know, the medulla, the cortex, everything. Um, I don't know, I guess, is the model sophisticated enough where you'll learn plenty from it at this stage? And, you know, is there a, a plan to really make truly a mini brain with uh, different areas? Yeah, well, those, like you said, that that's very hard to make. And I think it, you know, the, the models, that has been attempted by other groups. And, you know, with limited success. And the reason that's uh, the case is because as the, the larger an uh, in vitro model becomes, just the, the size, because there's no blood vessels, um, there's no nutrients that can reach the center of the sphere or the center of the model. And then it starts causing cell death in the middle. Um, and then as the more complex a model is, uh, the more variability uh, there is between each individual organoid. Um, so our model is more simple in that sense. It's an aggregate of the three main cell types and it's small, it's 300 uh, microns. But the good thing is that it's always the same. Uh, so we cannot use it to say study specifically what would happen in, an, in a region of the brain, but we can use it to study specifically what would happen in a particular cell type or with the interaction between, let's say, astrocytes and neurons in a particular viral infection or toxin exposure. Um, so it, it serves a little bit of a different function, but uh, we think that's actually better if you want to create reproducible, you know, scientific parameters that you can measure. Interesting. Um, has anyone in the organoid field been able to grow blood vessels so they can make, you know, denser, more complicated structures, or is that just a holdback on anyone working in organoids? Um, so there's some groups producing blood vessels, uh, and that's like its own project. I don't think to my knowledge that there's a brain organoid with blood vessels incorporated in it, um, but that's certainly a next step that I think is worth exploring because um, it's, it's a big limitation to grow them uh, in like in larger sizes. Okay, and then um, you know, it's one thing that came to mind. Um, you know, I know when a lot of cell types put out extracellular vesicles, lots of them, but in the brain, you know, I'm sure a lot of the cells communicate through, you know, neurologically. Um, I wonder if they have much of a need for EVs and if they put them out. And if that's, if, is that a part of your model at all? Have you seen any of them come out of the organoid, out of the so, cells? So if I, I've seen vesicles come out of the organoids? Yeah, if, they, if they're putting out any uh, extracellular vesicles, you know, the organoid cells. Yeah, so we, so we saw a few things. We saw that there are uh, synaptic structures. And uh, when there's uh, synaptic communication between neurons, there are vesicles of neurotransmitters that are produced, and we were able to measure markers of uh, you know, such neurotransmission in the model. 
Um, so we know that uh, there is at least, you know, that type of vesicle being produced. When we did electron microscopy, we saw evidence of uh, small vesicles inside the cells being produced. Um, so there is some of that. We haven't really measured that as an outcome, like as an endpoint in the um, extracellular fluid. Um, but for example, when we were testing for infection, we were able to measure uh, new viral production by the organoid, um, which is presumably, you know, through excretion of vesicles containing virus. So uh, any interesting behaviors you've seen from the organoids you make? Or, you know, you're testing, like you said, certain viruses on them. You know, what, uh, any experimental results that are really unusual or cool? Yeah, I, I think one of the coolest things of this model is is the presence of myelin. And, you know, to understand how important that is, is you have to understand that myelin is produced by oligodendrocytes and they are very hard to culture. And uh, because of that, most studies um, in diseases like multiple sclerosis are based in mice and um, a lot of the trials fail and whatnot. And that's probably because the biology is not the same. This model has mature looking oligodendrocytes, which is rare. And it's actually a surprising finding that we were not um, expecting to see. And then when we saw that these oligodendrocyte cells are actually wrapping the axons, uh, we were very happy and very surprised about that because that's um, usually not what uh, you achieve in culture. I think we're seeing that because the presence of astrocytes in, in the same culture enhances like the then the normal, like it approximates more the normal biology of the human brain. And probably they're signaling that you wouldn't have in a, let's say, a culture juice with oligodendrocyte precursors. Um, so this presence of myelin was very exciting for us and, and we can quantify it um, in a standardized way. And then we saw that the more, the older the organoid gets, uh, the more myelin it's produced. I think that's a, a big deal for us because now we can start thinking about you know, testing agents for remyelination, for example, which we haven't done yet, but um, it's sort of like the, the future of the multiple sclerosis field, I think. Um, for viruses, um, we were able to infect these oligodendrocyte cells with JC virus. And the JC virus is a very tricky virus because it can only infect human cells. And because of that, there's no animal model to date available to study that disorder and therefore no effective treatments um, because there's really no model to test the treatment in. Um, so now that we saw that we're actually able to achieve infection in that model, that's very exciting and that, you know, have us thinking about testing different chemicals, um, thinking out new treatments for that disorder. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what to ask you about this. What, uh, well, in terms of uh, protocols, I know that mouse models are like the gold standard. In general, when do you think organoids will be part of the, um, you know, the clinical trial process? When will they be used more than animal models, let's say? Well, that's the, I think that's the dream in a way. So animal models have a lot of limitations, like I've said already, but also some ethical issues with, you know, animal treatment and uh, cruelty and uh, if we are able to prove that you can get not only good enough data, but even better data based on having human model, human cells, uh, you know, in a model than, than animal data, then I think that they will, will sort of turn the corner and say, okay, let's use more relevant human models uh, for clinical trials. I don't think 
we're quite there yet because this technology is relatively new and um, a lot of the drug developing companies are very familiar with animal models and not so much with this type of technology. But I think there's more and more interest, interest uh, you know, from drug developing companies in this type of technology. Um, I imagine in the next 10 years, this will be used more and more and, and maybe at that stage we'll will change gears and start using this type of technology instead of animal models. Yeah, I figured because you're in the field, I just wondered what an update was. Is it, you know, is it still way far in the future or does it seem to be getting close? I think it's, it's getting closer and closer. Um, there's, uh, you know, depending of the use, I, I see one thing's closer than others. For example, using this model to screen, to evaluate toxicity of different substances, um, I think that's, that's, closer in the future than using it, for example, to study uh, diseases uh, like multiple sclerosis. Uh, using it to test compounds uh, as treatment for viral infections, I think that's very plausible and near in the future. It's relatively easy to do. You, you, we can produce 800 of these organoids uh, at a time. Oh, wow. uh, so they, we can produce many of them and treat them in different, at the same time, put them in different wells and expose them to many different substances. And that makes it way cheaper than doing that with animal models that are take longer to you know, be produced and they're more expensive. So I think the companies, the drug testing companies will be interested in this type of model just because you can massively produce it, it's cheaper and it's presumably you know, more accurate uh, depending on what you want to measure. So when you do your experiments, are you able to do you do like, you know, a hundred organoids at a time? Are they really cheap to make and easy or are they, are they still difficult? I think they're, they're cheap and easy to make. We make, let's say 800. And when we test, uh, I would say I use, yeah, something like 80 um, in an experiment with a standard would be, let's say you're testing three different experimental conditions and you put, I don't know, uh, 30 or 20 in each well and expose them to that. And you don't need that many. Yeah, you with just one organoid, you have a lot of information. But you, you know, for reproducibility of your experiments, you want to test up to this. I don't know, five of them per condition. Um, so it's really easy, you know, to to have enough material to reproduce experiments and test multiple conditions. And that's not true for, uh, let's say, mice, because um, they're they're harder to to work with. So what does that allow you to do in your experimentation? You're, I guess, you're able to. Uh... You know, it's, it's like having, I don't know, a whole bunch of animal models in a sense. I mean, you're able to, uh, I guess, test many at one time. Right, you can test many at one time. And I think importantly, many different conditions at one time. So like you can uh, put, a, you know, a dish with 90 wells and put five of these organisms in each well and, and test 90 different conditions in one experiment, which is really hard to do with, uh, you know, larger bulkier you know models like a you know a mouse okay so what what other experiments are you doing what are you trying to figure out right now with uh, with the organoids well right now we're focusing a lot of, on the on the jesse virus infection um another thing we were trying to do is uh working with hiv because there's um a condition that so in people that have um long-standing hiv we're starting to see cognitive decline, basically dementia that is uh, believed to be caused directly by the virus. And some studies have suggested that that's the virus infecting 
some of the uh, glial cells and, and the mechanisms by which that happens are not well understood. Um, so we are interested in looking into that, exposing these organoids to HIV and sort of studying the susceptibility of these different cells uh, to the virus and see if there's anything we can do to, uh, you know, stop the spread if, because uh, this happens, this, this uh, cognitive decline happens despite people being on adequate uh, therapy for the HIV. So the mechanism is felt to be different and is not understood. So that's our use of this model. You can use it to not only test compounds or test infections, but to try to understand the mechanism of disease because you can measure gene expression, uh, cell to cell interactions, um, susceptibility of different cells. So uh, we're looking into that for the HIV infection as well. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to, uh, to find out more? And maybe, I don't know if they could see some of the organoids, if you have any pictures, but uh, you know, how can they find out more from here? Yeah, well, I think we, we have a couple of papers on the model that have pictures. Um, uh, I think, it, so this model uh, was done in collaboration with the um, School of Public Health group at uh, Johns Hopkins. And uh, that's uh, David Pamis and Helena Hochberg, and they have in their website a video um, with like a YouTube link to, uh, you know, a little bit of how the process is made. So that, that would be a good way for people to find out, but hopefully we'll, you know, we'll be putting out more information uh, and more papers that people can access. All right, well, very good. Well, Paula, thank you for coming. The organoid field is, like I said, it's amazing. It's really cool. And, uh, you know, the brain is probably the, the most interesting part of it. So that's great. Um, what's the best way for people to, again, find out more? Is it a URL of a website where your research is? Uh, you know, how can they do it? Yeah, I think there, like if you go to the website of the uh, School of Public Health Lab, uh, um, they have they have a good video about it. Uh, and I think if you if you type uh, "mini brain Hopkins," then then you get uh, like very fast to to the website that that we have there with some cool. basic information. There's a link to a video that people can access. Well, if any person comes up when you put in "mini brain," you know that would be an insult to them, but. This is not what that is. <laughs> right. Well, very good. Well, Paula, well, thank you for coming. It's been a very cool call. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.